This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Good day and welcome to America Changed Forever. This week, President Joe Biden marked his one-year anniversary on the job. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's been a year of challenges, but it's also been a year of enormous progress. During his Wednesday press conference, he talked about what he views as his accomplishments. We created six million new jobs, more jobs in one year than any time before. The unemployment rate dropped to 3.9 percent. Child poverty dropped by nearly 40 percent, the biggest drop ever in American history. New business applications grew by 30 percent. And for the first time in a long time, this country's working people actually got a raise. We cut health insurance premiums for millions of American families, and we just made surprise medical bills illegal in this country. And fielded tough questions from reporters. Inflation is up. Uh, Your signature domestic legislation is stalled in Congress. COVID-19 is still taking the lives of 1,500 Americans every day, and the nation's divisions are just as raw as they were a year ago. You're not going to scale down any of these priorities, but so far that strategy isn't working. Your spending package, voting rights legislation, they're not going anywhere. And on Omicron and education, teachers are in in revolt in so many places. Parents are at odds over closing schools and remote learning. The Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said that the midterm elections are going to be a report card on your progress on inflation, border security, and standing up to Russia. Did you overpromise to the American public what you could achieve in your first year in office? And how do you plan to course correct going forward? He even seemed to give Vladimir Putin a green light to invade Ukraine. Russia will be held accountable. If it invades, and it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, etc. But if they actually do what they're capable of doing with the force amassed on the border, it is going to be a disaster for Russia. It's pretty clear the honeymoon is over. He's getting slammed by critics in the GOP and even critics within his own Democratic Party. As for his public approval ratings... According to a CBS News poll, he is at 44%. Nancy Cordes is the CBS News Chief White House Correspondent. Nancy, thanks for joining us. Jeff, thanks for having me. You asked the president a couple of questions during the press conference. What were they? Well, first I asked him about something that had just happened. Uh, It was the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, who held his regular Tuesday press conference, and he was asked about his agenda. And he he sort of um, declined to state what his Republican agenda would be. Instead, he said that the midterm elections coming up in November were going to be a referendum, a report card, if you will, on the progress of this president and the Democratic leaders in Congress, and specifically their progress on inflation, on border security, and on standing up to Russia. Uh, 
I wasn't sure why uh, the minority leader had chosen those three particular issues to focus on, but I wanted to ask the president whether he thought it was uh, fair that this midterm election should be a referendum on those issues in particular and his handling of them. So uh, that was the first question I asked him. And his response was that he thought that his report card based on those three issues would look pretty good. Um, But he went on to say that uh, he didn't know what Mitch McConnell stood for, that he liked him personally, um, uh, which was uh, interesting in and of itself because he and McConnell have clashed on any number of issues, but that he just didn't know what Mitch, he used his first name, I don't know what Mitch stands for, he said repeatedly. And beyond that, uh, he argued that Republicans had sort of reflexively stood in the way of uh, any of his attempts to make progress over the past year and that they had done so um, in part because they were scared of uh, a man who's not even in politics uh, at the moment, at least not in elective office, and that is a former president, Donald Trump. He said, uh, you know, did, would you ever imagine that someone who's not even in office could have this much power over people who are? And he claimed that there are about five Senate Republicans who have told him privately that they have wanted to side with him, but that he has been, but they have been prevented from doing so uh, because of their fear of former President Trump. I asked him if he could tell us the names of those five Republican senators, uh, but he he declined to do so. <laughs> that was a good follow-up question, by the way. Thank you very much. Uh, I didn't have high hopes of him <laughs> telling us the names, but I thought, why not give it a shot? Yeah, worth the try. <laughs> Uh, And then I asked him about voting rights, because uh, at his first press conference about 10 months ago, uh, I had asked him whether there was anything he could do on that issue, which he has said is a big priority for him, that doesn't involve legislation. Because uh, since the start of his presidency, it has looked very grim, uh, the prospects for Democrats getting major voting rights legislation passed, just given their numbers in the Senate. And at the time, he sort of waved me off and said, well, I do have a strategy that doesn't involve legislation, but I'm not going to tell you and the world about it right now. And so I thought I'd take another stab at it 10 months later, now that his legislative strategy is all but stalled in in the Senate. It's really clear now that it's not going anywhere. They've taken the test votes and they have failed. Uh, And once again, he said, I'm not going to tell you my strategy right now. He said it does involve executive action, but beyond that, he wouldn't go into any detail. And it's sort of unclear at this point whether he didn't want to share that strategy because he really just doesn't have many arrows in his quiver, frankly, that he's taken the action he can already uh, so far unilaterally with executive action. He just doesn't have that many other options or whether he really does have um, some things he thinks he can do on his own as president and doesn't want to give them away just yet. Um, It's frankly still uh, unclear to me exactly where he's going to go going forward. Interestingly, in the same press conference, he said that one of the mistakes that he has made, particularly when it comes to frustration in the black community on voting rights, is that he hasn't communicated more about his strategy. But he, you know, when he had an option to talk about it, he declined. What do you think about his performance overall? Monday morning quarterbacking, a lot of people are uh, criticizing him, uh, especially as it relates to his remarks about Ukraine. Uh, What do you think, generally speaking, about his performance? 
You know, I think that um, uh, one of the things that his aides would probably acknowledge frustrates them sometimes is that they think he doesn't get out while the getting is good. Um, And so he had a pretty strong first hour of the press conference calling on uh, the reporters who were on the list for him to uh, for him to call on. But then, uh, as often happens in these things, he sort of, you know, was feeling good and, and said, how long do you want me to go? I'll keep going. And of course, you know, what reporter isn't going to want to have more time with the president rather than less? And it was sort of in that second hour that things um, got a little more loosey goosey. And perhaps he um, said some things that, you know, that needed to be then cleaned up a little bit the next day, is, which is something that we've seen. Uh, we saw a sort of similar situation play out when he was giving a press conference in Geneva after he uh, had a meeting with Vladimir Putin. He had a very strong press conference, said what he wanted to say, um, but then got enticed by the fact that there were so many people there who wanted to ask more questions, and he stuck around and kind of got his back up uh, because he didn't like some of those later questions. And, um, you know, and that kind of detracted from what he had had to say earlier on in the press conference. So, um, you know, Today, um, what we're seeing is that the White House and the president himself are, are doing a little bit of cleanup, and he's clarifying what he had to say about Ukraine. Um, in the press conference, he seemed to suggest that perhaps if the Russians made a minor incursion into Ukraine, maybe, you know, it's not clear what exactly that would be, but just, you know, sending a few troops across the border into Ukraine rather than a full-scale assault, that perhaps the the president would view that differently than a major attack. Um, That didn't sit well with Ukraine at all. Uh, They said, hey, look, to us, it's all the same, whether it's a minor incursion or a major incursion, if you're crossing our borders and invading, that is a major problem. So the president, uh, had an event at the White House uh, on on infrastructure and used that as an opportunity to clarify that actually he does believe that any incursion into Ukraine will merit a swift response from the United States. Yeah, we're going to have to see how Vladimir Putin reacts now, what his next move is going to be after that news conference. So where do you think the Biden administration goes from here? Do they pivot in year two to uh, election year politics with the midterms coming up? What, What do they do? Well, I think that this is a president who has made the case that he can get government working again. And so he has a vested interest in passing legislation that he thinks are going that he thinks is going to help the American people. Um, and if he can't get the whole enchilada, if he can't pass, for example, his entire uh, $2 trillion Build Back Better spending bill, which is now stalled in the Senate, uh, he acknowledged in his press conference, it's time to break it up and try to pass at least some key pieces of that legislation. So I think you're going to see him, uh, you know, move off of some of these huge lofty goals that were always long shots and, and, and try to focus on the, on the art of the possible when it comes to build back better, when it comes to voting rights. He also said in his press conference, he's going to be very 
engaged in the midterm elections. He's going to be out there uh, campaigning for a lot of uh, members of Congress who he said have already asked him to get involved. He said he wants to communicate more with the American people uh, about his successes. He said he doesn't want to be a, a senator president quite as much. He wants to be um, more focused on talking to the American people rather than talking to Congress all the time. That's interesting because, you know, in a way that's really where his his heart is and where his expertise lies. He really sold himself uh, in the campaign as someone who knows how to get deals done and, um, and that that's what he's going to be focused on as president. And he has had some notable successes in that arena. I mean, let's not forget he passed the American Rescue Plan very early on in his presidency with, um, you know, crucial funding for schools, for state and local governments that were really suffering as a result of the pandemic. He also brought everybody together, uh, Democrats and Republicans, a rare bipartisan victory on on uh, infrastructure, $1 trillion package. Uh, that's something many presidents have tried to do, but have failed. So um, so he has had some significant legislative successes, and he's had some significant legislative near misses as well. In terms of his successes, I wonder if they're being overshadowed by the pandemic, by inflation, by gas prices, uh, because right now, as you know, according to the latest CBS News poll, his public approval rating is at 44%. You know, it has been a tough year, and there's no question that uh, historically, American voters, uh, you know, the way they feel about the economy is often the way they feel about the president of the United States. If things are going well, they feel relatively good about the president. If things aren't going well, uh, they don't feel as great about the president. And, you know, you've got to add COVID into the mix now, too, not only because, uh, you know, just health wise has had such a profound effect on the populace, but also economically in the form of supply chain disruptions and inflation and jobs lost and kids staying home from school and, and all the rest that all gets tied up in what the president acknowledged is a feeling of frustration in the country about the way things are going right now. Some of that is out of his control. Some of it isn't. Um, and he acknowledged that, for example, his administration could have worked more quickly to get free tests out to uh, the American public. Uh, they could have been more clear when it comes to guidance on masking, on testing, on isolating. But he argued, look, this is changing so quickly. The science is evolving. Under the circumstances, he still feels that the White House has done pretty well. Uh, I think there's also an interesting dilemma for this White House in particular, because they came in with such huge goals. You know, when you come in saying we want to pass a 3.5 trillion dollar spending bill, um, almost inevitably, there's going to be some frustration and disappointment uh, when you can't meet a goal that was really out there to begin with. Uh, same with voting rights. You know, most White House aides knew that the it was going to be a, a legislative long shot to get anything done in Congress on voting rights. But they went for it anyway because they knew how important it was to their base. And 
then, you know, sure enough, they couldn't get it done. And now there's a lot of disappointment out there from people who said, why didn't they try harder? Why didn't they try sooner? Um, uh, when when the reality is that just the numbers are, are stacked against them. And so I think what this White House is grappling with is, you know, how in, in year two, how do you balance thinking big, doing things that you you feel are right for the American public without risking the inevitable disappointment when, you know, we are still in a very polarized Washington, D.C. You're probably going to have to do most of this on your own, and, and some of it is possible and some of it isn't. Yeah, and I, I wonder, uh, given what has happened with voting rights and the failure there, you get the sense that among members of the Democratic Party, they want to see, I don't know, some people are are calling for heads to roll. You've heard speculation this week of a, a staff shakeup within the White House. Do you see something like that happening in the next few weeks, next months? I don't for a couple of reasons. First of all, the president was asked about that specifically, whether he has plans to change his staff, shake it up, let anybody go. And he said, no. Uh, He he said he doesn't intend to do that. Second of all, this president is a a particularly loyal politician. Um, He tends to stand by his staff. And as a result, they stand by him. And he's got people around him who have been with him for 30 years. And so I think, you know, with this president in particular, uh, any given staff or advisor would have to do something pretty egregious in order to be replaced. And then I think, you know, thirdly, I'm not sure realistically what the people around him could have done to get a different result on on voting rights. The reality is that the current rules of the Senate state that you need 60 votes to break a filibuster in order to bring legislation to the floor and He doesn't have 60 votes. He has 50 Senate Democrats. And um, uh, and that's just that's just not enough. You can pass the legislation in the House, but in the Senate, it is extremely difficult. Now, maybe he could work with Republicans on a very uh, watered down piece of voting rights legislation uh, that, let's say, only deals with voting integrity and, and doesn't deal with things like making um, Election Day a federal holiday or um, uh, allowing people in all 50 states to vote early or vote by mail. You, It's possible. We haven't really watched that process play out yet. It's unclear how many Republicans would really be open to that. But you know, it's, it, it's possible that in year two, he might try to work with Republicans on a much, much smaller voting rights bill. But it really wasn't possible to get started on that either in year one until they had tried to make the push on their own, tried to go for the big voting rights package and failed before they could pivot to the the potential of a bipartisan solution. Nancy Cordes, always good to get your take on what's happening at the White House. Nancy Cordes, chief White House correspondent for CBS News. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jeff. It was great. I want to know what Republicans are thinking about the president's first year in office. Joining me now is John Easton, who is a GOP strategist. John, what is your take overall about the president's press conference and his standing a year on the job? Yeah, well, the president's press conference um, was really 
enlightening, I think, and, and disappointing at the same time. The, the, his first year, 2021, I think was, I'd give him about a C minus and uh, in terms of a grade. And that's really, it's that high because he did, I believe he restored some decorum and character to the, to the Oval Office that I, that I believe Americans were hoping for and, and expecting. But honestly, beyond that, uh, it was a it was a real disappointment because of how hard partisan that he went out of the gates, and I think he surprised uh, certainly surprised a lot of his former colleagues in the United States Senate, uh, where he had been for so many years. All right, so you gave him was it a C plus? C minus. Oh, you gave him a C minus. All right, aren't you being a little hard on him? <laughs> I mean, listen, when he took office, there was a pandemic underway um you know many other things going on across this country including inflation supply problems uh oh and by the way january 6 so there there's a lot that has happened in the last year so do you really think c minus is fair yeah i do and i think uh, for, for me the most telling moment was actually december of of 2020 when the two Georgia seats flipped to Democrat and it effectively gave the Democrats control of the United States Senate, of course, but also they had control of the House and and, and uh, Joe Biden was heading into the White House. And in talking to uh, uh, former colleagues, uh, Democratic colleagues of mine in, in the Senate, they said, hey, uh, the party is going big. Um, we're going we're going to we know we have all three. And we're going to make use of it because we not may not have it for long. We're going to go big on climate change. We're going to go big on immigration. We're going to go big on healthcare spending, and and certainly with with the COVID and you know more relief packages and more money to the states. And it was very eye opening. And I was think I was, th- I was thinking to myself, but you have the slimmest of slim majorities in the in the United States Senate. It's a 50-50 tie with, of course, the tiebreaker going to the Democrats with the vice president. So how exactly are you going to go this big um, with with only having half the Senate on your team? And of course, the House of Representatives can do whatever they want since it's a uh, it's basically a di- dictatorship there. But I, I thought, wow, we've got some dark days ahead because this this portends no bipartisanship uh, with that kind of a uh, an outlook from the party. All right, so I'm I'm reading through your bio, and you know I think it's fair to say uh, that you're a moderate, right? You're a more traditional Republican. Is that fair? I mean, I see you worked for Gordon Smith of Oregon, Kelly Ayotte of New Hampshire. You were. You were on the board of the bipartisan chiefs of staff group. All right, so so you're not a Trumper, are you? <laughs> uh, I, I certainly have, have cut my teeth and uh, in in working with just about anybody on on parties. I mean, I, I'm certainly philosophically, you know, uh, uh, pretty conservative, but I have worked for for senators who have have who always worked across the aisle because they knew that was in the best interest, not only of their constituents, but of of the country. And, and, and that's truly how you get the big things done. And I think that if you look at 2021 and you look at, at Joe Biden, he came out of the gates and right away there was a $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan. And that was passed purely on party lines, uh, both in the House 
and in the Senate. Um, so that 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 essentially, you know, the Gulf had had started right then and there. Then, you know, right away they went to a um, a budget reconciliation bill, uh, which Joe Biden calls Build Back Better. And that that encompasses all those priorities I talked about earlier, you know, the climate change and the immigration piece. And 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 of course, the immigration piece that ended up getting kicked out by the parliamentarian because it was non-germane. But when you know, it relies on a procedure to pass with only 50 votes. So that automatically is a Democrat only exercise. It consumed a ton of time and energy and hardened an already partisan division that existed in the Senate. Um, and then the one upside, and again, this I would give I would give uh, the president and and the um, Senate and the House some credit on infra- the infrastructure bill. It was a bipartisan bill, not by much, but it was still a bipartisan bill. And um, of course, that's low hanging fruit because who doesn't want infrastructure? Everybody has for years wanted a, a bill, so they got that over the finish line. That was good. But then they went to an election bill that was sure to be an emotional partisan ex- experience. And it unfortunately led us to an effort to try to kill the filibuster in the Senate. And I've been shocked that President Biden has put the weight of his office behind that change to fundamentally change the U.S. Senate, where he was a member for 36 years. Um, and then I was even more shocked when he went down to Atlanta recently and gave that highly charged speech um, excoriating those who opposed the election bill. Uh, and a lot of it was, was of course, invoking racism um, that was sure to um, just anger. And um, just it was just a very emotional speech. So that, I think, has poisoned the well uh, considerably. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned COVID. You mentioned you know, the pandemic and the supply chain issues. There have been plenty of areas of common ground that the president could be could have sought in his first year, and my hope is is that he he resets and he looks for ways to work with uh, politicians of all stripes uh, to to try to get things done and send a message to the the public, particularly in a midterm, right, that uh, he's there to try to get things done, um, not just with his own party but actually with, with, with the opposition as well. What you're saying, I think, makes a lot of sense in terms of election year politics. Did you hear that kind of pivot in his press conference? Well, I heard two things that uh, contradicted each other. I, you, you heard him not pivot or, or reset um, he said, "Oh, sure, it, it's on me that my mistake that I that I haven't communicated well enough, or that I haven't informed well enough." Uh, they they kind of all say that, right? It's, it's it's a go-to excuse of why things aren't going very well. I just need to communicate better or get out there more. Okay, that's fine. But he really, I thought he kind of doubled down, particularly on the on the election bill, and when and when he was asked, "Do you do you need to scale back a bit uh, to get things passed?" He said, "No." Uh, most important thing to do is to inform people what's at stake. Okay, that's so he's gonna he's gonna go the same road here. But then what what to me was the most telling moment yesterday was when President Biden was asked whether the country is more unified than when he took office. He said yes, but not as unified as it should be. 
Then he said, I still contend that unless you can reach consensus in a democracy, you cannot sustain democracy. Well, where has this consensus been? He, he just tried to kill the, the, the one mechanism in the Senate that forces some sort of compromise or consensus to get those big bills passed. So I saw two things, two um, yeah, sense that he just, uh, they collided yesterday and they didn't, um, they didn't make sense to me at all. And I, so therefore I don't know where he's going uh, because he said two diametrically opposed uh, things. If, you know, if, if someone is listening to this and they support President Biden, they might, you know, obviously they're going to hear that you're a GOP strategist and they might think, oh, well, I expect him to say these kinds of things uh, about the sitting president. However, um, you know, if, if you look at the state of his presidency right now, public approval rating 44%, which isn't great. Uh, in terms of his rating among Democrats, 81%, uh, which I'm not an expert in polls, but uh, it should probably be a little higher in the 90s at this point. Um, but what, what do you think, looking at this, not as a GOP strategist, but just as you know, someone who might be observing a, an upcoming election, uh, the state of play heading into the midterms and also ahead to 2024. You know, how, is he wounded right now? Yeah, oh, I think he is wounded right now. And, uh, you know, taking a, a what you said is a GOP strategist hat off. I, I think that what he needs to do is display some some real leadership, because if, if you if you look at the uh, the various surveys out there uh, that obviously we many of us have seen over the last couple of weeks about his performance and how he's being judged by by the American people. It's uh, as you said, it's 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 pretty disappointing for him. And you know that they are trying to figure out ways to um, uh, to sort of get get over that and, and get those numbers back, you know, get them up again. And and I, I think leadership has everything to do with it. I mean, just look at domestically. Um, I think he needs a moment where he stands up to some element of of his base. Because, I mean, I think right now it just looks like he's getting led around in the legislative arena by by his tail, by by the left. And and I think I think people want to see that, you know, he can think for himself and he can pick areas where um, it's 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 important for the the whole country that we that I'm not in agreement with what they're saying here. I'm I'm going to go this way. You know, obviously we've had you know occasions in the past from from presidents of both parties where they where they've done that. And and I think on foreign affairs he needs to show some real strength and resolve with Ukraine. Um, I, I think the, the Afghanistan piece, the the, the failure in, a, in in the withdrawal of Afghanistan really damaged uh, his his standing on the leadership question. And I think he's still recovering from that. I think he's still reeling from that a bit. And now he's got Ukraine, which, you know, I don't think people think that or want American troops, you know, in, in Ukraine. I'm not saying that at all. But I think that they're listening to him. They're hearing a lot about economic sanctions. And I just don't think they really believe that what he's saying right now has teeth. And he taught, he likes to talk a lot about NATO and he likes to talk about, um, 
you know, European countries and, and allies. That's fine. And I think people like NATO to an extent, but what they really want to see is, okay, what's America doing here? What, what is the president of the United States doing here? And, and how is he standing up to, you know, this, this bully that, that, which is Putin. This is just what Putin loves to do, saber rattle and bully. And I think this is an opportunity for the president to really um, show the American people he's, he's got this that he, he understands foreign affairs uh, you know, with the best of them. And, and he's going to and he's going to uh, do right by by our country. Wouldn't you, though, give him higher marks on Ukraine uh, and these negotiations with Putin uh, than, say, what we saw over the last four years with uh, with President Trump? Um, it, it seems to me, I haven't heard a lot of Republican criticism about his handling of Ukraine. Maybe it's been overshadowed by the talk about the filibuster and voting rights, but you haven't heard a lot of criticism there. Do you think that most moderate Republicans agree with what he is doing in terms of his handling of the situation there? Oh, I think there hasn't been um, a lot of talk. Uh, right now, particularly among those senators and and, and members of the House in, in Washington, to this point, because not a lot has happened yet. Uh, you know, I think that, and and to your point, I think that uh, it has been o- overshadowed. The situation has been overshadowed. Uh, but you know, I mean, I, I would say with the the previous administration, that that actually was one of the the high points was was how he dealt with China and how. Um, you know, he, there weren't, you know, everybody thought he was going to start a bunch of wars. Of course he didn't, uh, you know, pulled out of Syria and, and, um, you know, began to draw down in, in Afghanistan, uh, much more carefully than, than president Biden. But, um, I just, I just feel like, I don't think he's communicating, uh, very well on this, uh, nor is the secretary of state. I, I just think they could be much more forceful and clear about, you know what these what some of the red lines are and 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 what our what our policy is in this in this situation and 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 so we'll see obviously coming on but i'm just saying that that is an opportunity to to prove his mettle on foreign affairs i mean he loves to say talk about how how you know long of a, of a resume he has and, and, and on these issues and and it's 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 going to be uh, it's going to come to a head and and i think that that will do a lot for how he's perceived on, on the leadership question. And, you know, with uh, uh, domestically, I mean, I, I feel like if he can get a, a win, I mean, he talked about yesterday, he talked about, you know, that he was asked why he hadn't reached out to someone like Mitt Romney. And he said, well, I was too busy trying to get all of my members on board. Well, if you look back into the, you know, the, the history of some of the, the, the big piece of legislation that have passed, um, you know, you lose some members of your party, you gain some members of the other party. I mean, that's, that's how you build coalitions and that's how you get to 60 in the Senate. And I was very disappointed with that answer because, you know, I feel like, uh, the answer could have been much more proactive in terms of, you know, there, there's a lot of people I can work with on the other side and, you know, we're, we're going to make that effort, you know, just, you know, something that's more forward looking, more positive. Um, it doesn't mean he's got to get half the caucus, the Republican caucus. It just means, I mean, there is, there is a, a path to getting 10 Republicans in the Senate on 
on important pieces of legislation. I really don't think he's tried hard enough. And I think it's going to, it's going to be what it takes. And I think that, uh, that's also how he's going to be judged in the, in the, in the coming year. Um, that's going to speak to his leadership. All right. So I, I'm really going to put you on the spot right now. Okay. <laughs> so br- brace yourself, John. Um, all right. So let's just say you had to offer something positive that President Biden has done in the last year. What would you say that is? Oh, I, I think it was the, it was the infrastructure bill. And, uh, because, uh, and he loves to point to that and he should, um, but it was, it was one of those areas where of course there's common ground. You know, you want to spend a bunch of money on, on roads and bridges and rail. It's, it's, you're going to, you're going to get them by in there. Um, so I, I give him, um, I give him credit for that. And I think that, um, you know, he'll, everybody's going to, you know, go out and, and tout their uh, projects in their district and their state. And that's, that's part of the, 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 the currency in Washington, D.C. is, is being able to uh, tout your successes in, in bills like that. So I, I feel like that was, a, that was an important bill. Uh, it was long overdue uh, to get something of that magnitude. And, and, and I give him credit. Wow. All right. That didn't seem too hard. I mean, that was good. That was, that was really, you know, I feel better. <laughs> Hearing, you know, ending this interview on something positive. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and do that with every interview, because sometimes <laughs> it's just so easy. You look at the landscape these days, and you just, it's a little depressing out there, you know. And it's more than just the weather here in DC. I mean, it's just, there's some stuff going on that's pretty serious stuff. So, you know, John, I, I really appreciate you ending on an, a positive note. Thank you. Sure. That's uh, certainly the way I love to uh, see uh, this business of ours and in politics in Washington, D.C. And you just you really are rooting for the country you know, more than anything else. And, and I think that uh, I, I, I'd love to see the positive anytime we can get it. Yeah. Rooting for the com- country. That's a good way of putting it. I think we uh, we all are. I, at least I hope we all are. John Easton, GOP strategist. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Jeff. get the the democratic perspective on the president's press conference this past week with Mario Solis Marich, democratic consultant with Targeted Technologies. Mario, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Jeff. All right. So be honest now, um, (laughs) (laughs) after this press conference, are you going to spin it Toward the positive, I mean, what do you take from that? Well, I I think if we're talking about the actual press conference, I think it went a half hour too long. I I I think that the president sometimes is better served to be more succinct, and uh, but he was you know held captive in that room for I think a half hour longer than he should have been. I think that the, that he has a lot to tout. I mean, obviously. You know, 220 million Americans vaxxed, the 1.3 trillion infrastructure bill. And for me, something that is rarely talked about is the major dent in child poverty 
that we've experienced this year, which is really a super undersold aspect to all the programs that have been implemented, but extremely important. Unfortunately, it's going to expire and we'll see, we'll see how he's able to revive that going forward. I think the downside is obviously there's a lot of pushback this morning about his statements on the Ukraine, which quite frankly, you know, I cringed when I heard him say that. I'm I'm not sure. I it, it's obvious that these are the whispers amongst the NATO diplomats and our allies. Not there was parts of what he said that probably should not have gone into public, into the public sphere. But here we are, right? With and that's that's what I think is is a problem with a with a very long format press conference for this president. The, the the difficulty that this president has is that he doesn't quite understand that he is the head of the Democratic Party. At his at his fingertips, he has the right to control the Democratic National Committee, the the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and all the other apparatuses. And they really have not been utilized to do the job of amplifying the work that's been done in these first 12 months of this presidency. And I think that that is a problem that is going to have major ramifications if it's not corrected. One thing you have not mentioned is voting rights and the failure there. Are you trying to turn the page or are Democrats trying to turn the page on that? No. I mean, you know, that uh, voting rights, I don't see that as a presidential accomplishment or failure. I mean, this is the, the, the problem that we have with the voting rights bill is basically a collapse of the U.S. Senate. There's no other way to describe it. Well, certainly, Mansion and Cinema deserve a, a lot of a lot of criticism and condemnation for their inability to step forward at this historic time. But at the same time, we had not a sing- if we, all we needed was two Republicans to to offset that. We did not have a single Republican, you know, vote for the bill or vote you know, or vote therefore vote against the you know or change or vote for changing the filibuster rules. We focused a lot on cinema, and once again, I think that her actions were notorious. Uh, Joe Manchin, uh, completely irresponsible and also notorious for his actions yesterday. But this is really a collapse of the U.S. Senate. Their inability to move beyond partisan um, goals uh, for, for the good of our country is shameful. And if you look at the tally... Um, certainly there were far, far more Democrats willing to address the egregious actions of state legislatures than there were Republicans. So where do the Democrats, where does the Biden administration go from here to make year two better? Well, first of all, I think that that there's only two outstanding agenda items. When you take a look at everything that's that's been accomplished already, you know, we are focused a lot on Build Back Better and on the voting rights bill, but all the other agenda items have been ticked off. Now, Build Back Better is extremely important. He talked yesterday about breaking that up into smaller bills, um, to, and, and I think that's important so that the American people could see, 
you know, who's voting against the things that the vast majority of the American voter, regardless of party, wants. And I think that's an extremely important political exercise. I'm not convinced that we actually get any wins, you know, out of that. But, but you know, but I'm a, I'm a pessimist on that front. But I think Joe Biden really needs to understand that he is not only the leader of the country, but the leader of the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party needs to be forced, if need be, to amplify the accomplishments of this president and the dangers that, you know, wait us if we don't correct what's happening, you know, with with voting rights and if we don't move forward with Build Back Better. One of the things that I, I think is is also important to note is that we had all this fear mongering that if we gave working people extra money because of COVID, that the whole country was going to become socialist, right? That this was socialism in disguise. Quite the opposite. What we saw was in, in historic increase in new businesses. The American people took the little bit of cash that they had, the little bit of freedom that that gave them. And they've decided to embrace capitalism. And I think that is a that is significant, not only because of the positive future outcome that it's going to have, but also because it lays bare the big lie, the other big lie, that somehow giving working people, middle class people a little elbow room is going to turn them into socialists. It, it, it has not proven itself out at all. Quite the opposite. We're seeing an increase a historic increase in new businesses. I can't help but listen to that speech or the press conference, look ahead to the midterms and even campaign season for the general election, the presidential election in 2024, and think that this is a president who has to be able to save the American people gas prices are down, the price of goods in your local supermarket down. I did that. I think that's going to be the real problem for him uh, because there are a lot of people who on a daily basis, they're going to fill up their car, they're going to pick up some milk, and they can see how prices have risen on this president's watch. Doesn't he have to do more to address those pocketbook issues? I, I think that those pocketbook issues need to be addressed, but let's let's, you know, every individual family is looking at their balance sheet. And yes, they're paying more at the, you know, at the gas tank, but their equity in their home, which is their major investment, has grown uh, you know, substantially. Mario, that's that's good if you own a home. And there are a lot of people who don't own homes right now. And that, that to me, sounds like a, a Republican talking point, to be quite honest. Well, it, it, but, but, but it's not. I mean, because we have to, as Democrats, take a look and, and, you know, we have to take a look at exactly how people are looking at their lives and how they balance out their lives. You know, just a, once again, a few, you know, a, a few months ago, even, or maybe a year ago, we were seeing all these headlines. Most Americans don't have more than $500 in their savings account. And that was a, that is a real cause for concern. 
But right now, the concern from economists is that working class and middle class Americans have too much money that they haven't spent or that or, or so there's too much money going after goods. Now, that the solution is not to take that money away or to make it harder on them, which which some conservative economists are suggesting. But we're, we're seeing a major shift in in everybody's economic reality. And we have to be careful as Democrats. You know, I'm, you know, as a Democratic consultant and my my Democratic colleagues have to be careful that we don't apply an analysis of 15 years ago to this particular uh, upcoming presidential election. I think the midterms are a different issue. I mean, we're, we're going to experience the first blow uh, because of the gerrymandering that has taken place uh, as it is. Historically, a president in power loses seats, so we can't all be shocked if that happened. That's a that's a historic trend in the United States, but we also can't blind ourselves to the fact that some of these gerrymandered lines, you know, look like you know the shapes of mythological beasts. And I I, I do believe that you know we have to be prepared you know, for for those losses just because of the logistics. Now, you could message all you want. We, we, had, we already had states in the past where more Democrats vote than Republicans and Republicans, you know, still end up winning those state legislatures. We know the real impact of gerrymandering. And so we have to, you know, we also have to make that part of our analysis. Does Joe Biden need to do a better job at messaging Absolutely. Should is he underutilizing the resources that he has as, at his disposal for that? Absolutely. Does he d- need to do a better job? You know, sinking into Latino and African American uh, voting communities. Absolutely. But right now, we're looking at agenda that he set out that got three quarters done within twelve months. And I, I just, I find it, you know, I, I want, I, I came to this conversation thinking about this last night. And I was thinking I need to be really objective. You know, I'm, I, I would give him a B, I guess, just to look objective. But really, if I were being honest, he'd have to get an A minus because I, I'm not sure. And this is one statement that he said yesterday. I'd be very clear. Nobody thought he'd get this much done in 12 months. They were, you know, we're, we're grading him on a 12-month curve in the middle of a health crisis, a, a, a huge health crisis, faced by a party that does everything it can to exasperate that health crisis, uh, and, and looking at a, an onslaught on voting rights in the country, and still we're looking at like a 3.9% unemployment rate, record new businesses, a, a 1.3 trillion in, you know dollar infrastructure bill i mean this is if this presidency if we were to stop the clock today we would have to say that this has been a a presidency of consequence already in the first 12 months now does he need to do better absolutely well listen if we were to stop the clock today he might not get reelected Because if you look at the latest CBS News poll, he's at 44%, as is Kamala Harris. 
So those are not good numbers. Wouldn't you agree? I think that those are not good numbers if the election were to be held today. I do, I do know that it's somewhat in line with past presidents at this, at, you know, at this point in history and, you know, in the, at the end of their first year. And in fact, you know, there are other presidents that, you know, that rated lower. I, I, you know, there, there is kind of this model in American politics where that has not actually been working since, since Obama became, uh, since Obama was reelected. You know, Obama, all the ind- historic indicators were that a president with Obama's numbers, his economic numbers, his popularity numbers would not be reelected. And yet he was. We, you know, it, this is not an issue. I don't believe it's totally an issue with the polls. Uh, I think it's, I think that fundamentally the way the American people are choosing the president has changed. They have a lot more information. A lot of that information, unfortunately, as we both know, is is not great, you know, not accurate information, but they do have a lot of information and they're basing their votes on a number of different factors. You know, is, is $5 at the gas pump untenable? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, and should he work on it? Yeah, because it's, you know, it's bad, right? It's not good. Is it going to be the deciding factor? We won't know until he has an opponent and we won't know until that opponent, you know, lays out their agenda and not only that, but their behavior. A lot of people voted against Donald Trump because of his behavior, you know, in, in the last election. And, the, you know, certainly um, the, you know, the, the, the environmental factors are going to weigh in. But I don't think we could go back to the old models anymore. I think the old models of how we say a president's going to be elected or reelected, they have not really functioned well for at least three presidential cycles. And so I, I think that we can't just hope that they go back, you know, to the way they were before. Something has fundamentally changed in the way this generation of voters is choosing their leadership. Mario Solis, Marich, Democratic consultant. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeff. I appreciate it. I'm Jeff Begays, joined now by Michael Waldman, president of the Brennan Center for Justice and Norman Ornstein of the American Enterprise Institute. Norman, I'm going to start with you. What do you think of the president's news conference? You know, I give it a B, a solid B. Uh, There are a couple of things. Uh, First, it's the longest press conference uh, that I have ever seen and maybe the longest ever. Uh, And I think Joe Biden went for two hours uh, because he wanted to uh, blow away this idea that he does not have the stamina uh, or the mental acuity to be president. And I thought he did an excellent job with that. He did not make any significant mistakes, and the press corps is always ready to pounce on mistakes. Are you referring to the one about Ukraine? Small one on Ukraine, um, which he you know, corrected uh, after a short while, uh, where he used the term incursion. Uh, but was really referring not to a physical incursion, but to other uh, uh, aspects of Putin's behavior, including 
uh, cyber uh, attacks uh, and the like. Uh, he, I thought at the beginning he could have been crisper in trying to make the case for uh, the accomplishments of the first year. I thought uh, that his, able, his ability to turn the focus to the fact, and it is a fact, that the Republicans have no agenda, which Mitch McConnell repeated again, um, was powerful for him. I would say as well, uh, Jeff, that I give the press corps a D. Um, there were some good questions, a number of inane ones. The White House press corps um, is really not up to the task. Well, wait a second. So now, in, in fairness, what did they not ask? Or was it in the way that they were asking the questions that, that you didn't like? Um, so we have a lot of questions about the horse race in terms of what will happen with Build Back Better, what will happen with uh, the voting rights issue. Almost nothing on the substance of those issues or why uh, they're uh, pushing them that way. We had a lot of questions about polls, which I believe are questions asked by reporters who can't ask questions about substance because they don't know anything about substance. So they fall back on polls. And then, of course, we had the cringeworthy questions. Uh, and that includes, why are you not bringing unity to the country? Or why do people think you don't have the mental capacity for this job? Some of this uh, does not reflect well on the nature of modern journalism. Mm, wow, that's a tough assessment of journalism. I uh, I don't want to ask you what grade you'll you you'd give the media at this point because I suspect it'll be. Let's wait till this interview is over. <laughs> oh gosh, no! Now you've you've lumped me into your grading process, uh, Michael. What what do you think of the president's performance? Well, I'll I'll uh, I'll stand in solidarity with the with the vast majority of of ordinary Americans and confess that I didn't see it. <laughs> so I guess, uh, that, that, that's on me. Uh, you know, I think that, um, he has been, uh, faced with some really very significant challenges, um, and has done quite a bit on them and has perhaps chosen a strategy on a number of things that had a, fair chance of producing success question whether it has at least not yet this is often a challenge for for democratic big d democratic presidents they come in with a big legislative agenda um they have to decide whether to be very directive and particular on what they want or whether to turn a lot over to congress and um i worked for bill clinton and early on he was very directive uh, when they did a health care plan, Hillary Clinton did her health care plan. It was a thousand pages long. Um, President Obama, by contrast, learned those lessons, maybe overlearned them, and turned quite a lot over to Congress. Um, and, you know, President Biden has had the challenge that, again, can befall a president who is trying to get a lot of legislation done, of getting sucked into the maw of the legislative process and looking as though he is a prime minister rather than a president, in a sense. Um, and in, and uh, that, that makes it harder to communicate. It makes it harder to communicate 
priorities, it makes it harder to project whatever aura is left of the presidency. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, you might get more done. So far, that gamble didn't really pay off, certainly with Build Back Better. Um, and on the voting rights issue, the president was very slow and very late to get involved. When he did get involved, it was uh, it was a full-on press uh, using all the tools that a president does have. But uh, but it might have uh, it might have been different story and different outcome if it had been a little earlier in the year. But he did jump in and really put his muscle behind it uh, and raise it up as a public issue. Yeah, but you know, post what happened in the Senate, you know, in the last few days, Norman, this this president. He looks wounded heading toward the midterm elections. You know, public, uh-oh, here I go bringing up those polls again, but 44% is uh, his public approval rating according to the latest CBS News polling. And that just does not look go- good heading toward November. Uh, look, I think we have to be um, candid about this. He definitely does not have the standing that he needs or his party needs, uh, although we're a long ways off from November. Unfortunately, it's going to be harder because of uh, the failure of uh, 50, all 50 Republicans and two Democrats to support uh, changes that will make it uh, harder to uh, tilt elections or uh, uh, make them fair. Um, I think really it's not so much even the infighting among Democrats, although that's certainly a part of it. And there's a... Uh, terrific column by Greg Sargent in the Washington Post today about how uh, going back to the Obama years, Mitch McConnell's strategy, which is to just try to block everything, leave Democrats uh, fighting amongst themselves because things don't get done, and then uh, putting all the blame on the party in power uh, works, and it's working again. But I think the reality is that COVID uh, is what looms over all of this. The distemper in the country after three years, really, of first having two years of disruption in lives, uh, lockdown, shutdowns, and thinking finally we're coming out of it. And then uh, the Delta variant hits and smacks people uh, right where they live. And then after that, we end up with Omicron. If that goes away, if, in fact, this is the last significant variant, we get back to a kind of normal life. If, given that so many parts of the economy are going uh, full bore, um, we can do something about inflation. And remember, a third of the inflation is because of auto prices, because of the supply chain problems with chips. A lot of the rest of the inflation is uh, the supply chain because after uh, COVID, there's a pent-up demand and we don't have the supply. If they ease those things in the next few months, I think we'll see a, a, a boost for Biden, regardless of what happens in the inside the Beltway uh, political game. Michael? During Trump's presidency, people's attitudes toward him, toward the president's performance, toward politics, were uncoupled in some ways from the basic underlying realities more than usually is the case. Um, usually you can tell how a president is going to do, as as Norm said, in a midterm with some precision based on, on the economy. You know, Trump was so polarizing with his 
uh, antics and authoritarianism that th- he, there was still some of that, and certainly COVID affected that. But but it wasn't like a normal thing. I've seen interesting evidence that in addition to COVID and the impact, both economically but psychologically, that Norm is utterly correct in describing, that you can track the president's approval rating pretty closely to gas prices, um, which is, you know, for most people where they can see prices go up and down uh, in a way that very much affects them. And in a sense, that's kind of an old, that's a return to normalcy (laughs) of its own. Um, And of course, the challenge is uh, there are limited things that this president or any president can do about inflation. Um, it's also the case that for so many people, generations now of Americans have had no experience of any inflation at all. And so for someone, uh, an old geezer like me, say, saying, oh, this is nothing like, like 1979, really doesn't go very far if all anyone has experienced is very low interest rates and low inflation. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's be honest. And, um, you know, I mentioned this quite frequently on this program. I grew up overseas, uh, and even though, yeah, I'm an American, I know that, you know, we kind of get spoiled in this, in this country. But the reality is, it hurts when you go and you, you fill up your car, you're reminded uh, weekly about how much, it's, how much more it will cost you to fill up your tank. Or when you go to the local supermarket and you see that the prices are up. So, you know, I suspect that if this president can get his hand and his 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 hands and his administration behind or, you know, solely, not solely because that's impossible, but focused on these issues that are hitting people in the pocketbook, uh, his chances and, and the Democrats chances in November could be much improved. Norman, I agree. And. You know, it's interesting. Uh, gas prices become a headache in a couple of ways. You see it and feel it every time the price goes up, just as you said, Jeff, when people go to the pump. When the price comes back down again, it doesn't uh, have the same impact. If you go in week to week and the price is the same, um, you're not going to feel enormous gratitude uh, towards the president even though we know at this point, of course, because gas prices are uh, higher across the globe, that this is not a function so much of American policies as it is of the larger global realities. But uh, the prices have already come down. And one question is, if we get disruption in uh, Ukraine, um, will that cause a disruption in supplies of oil and gas? Will that raise prices again? And will this be another one of those issues that starts to recede and then comes right back? I think we're all three of us uh, participating in this interview are old enough to remember uh, when George H. Walker Bush was accused of not being able to feel the pain of the average guy, uh, especially when he was asked about, I think that was George H. Walker Bush, the the price of a gallon of milk. Um, And I, for some reason, I'm just reminded of that so much these days. And I think the president in his news conference talked about uh, his uh, empathy for the American people. Um, I suspect he'll have to do more of that going forward, Michael. 
Yes. And, you know, w- with Bush uh, and other politicians like him, those kinds of stories, some of them almost took on the aspect of a tall tale. There was, there was uh, when he was campaigning for re-election in the New Hampshire primary and he was being challenged by that man of the people, street populist, Pat Buchanan, who was, of course, a, a TV host and Washington columnist um, and former speechwriter. Uh, Bush was out there campaigning with, with real people and he seemed to express tremendous surprise and he was very impressed by supermarket scanners and that was seen as like proof of how much of a bubble he'd been in as first vice president and then president but it also was the case that he was this um connecticut preppy and it played into that stereotype i think people feel about joe biden that he while he has been a senator um you know and in public life for half a century that he's he's got a connection in some ways to middle class people to working people riding the train all of that kind of stuff i think it would be hard to persuade people that he's turned into some kind of um uh elitist living in a castle uh whatever the truth of the matter is so i you know i i uh i i think that that Part of this is a, a moment when we don't know what the economy is going to look like. We don't know what's going to happen with COVID. And the legislative process is distorted and stalled. One of the things, one of the aspects of the debate over the filibuster as it unfolded that I think was really important that the Senate spent days voting, debating voting rights and days debating how broken the Senate is. But one of the ways the Senate is broken, and Norm Ornstein has written brilliantly about this, is that because the filibuster requiring 60 votes is universal now, and this is a relatively recent thing, since there was inflation, (laughs) it's only recent, relatively recent that everything has to go through the filibuster. The result is they create all these carve-outs and workarounds, 160 in all. And that's what people were pushing for on the voting rights bill. But the biggest one is reconciliation, budget reconciliation. Those bills can pass with 50 votes. And as a result, all the policy gets smushed into these gargantuan bills, whether it's a tax cut or, in the Democrats' case, these spending bills that then become so big that it's easy to say that nobody knows what's in it, or it's a jumble of policies, or the price tag is so big that uh, everyone gets sticker shock, that it that in turn is itself a function of the distortions of of the legislative process, and that has been something that you know still has dragged down Biden and the Democrats. Norman, I'll I'll, I'll ask you the final question. Do you what do you anticipate with Congress in the midterms? Uh, we're we're heading down the stretch here. You said that we do have some time, but do you expect heavy losses by the Democrats? I don't expect heavy losses in part because uh, what happens in a midterm often depends on what happened in the previous presidential contest. Uh, if a party, a president's party gains a lot of seats, including many that have been very close in the past, they're likely to lose a lot of them back. Democrats didn't have so many of those. The other thing that's worked to their advantage uh, is that the redistricting process, which has not been great has been nowhere near as bad as they anticipated. It's not over yet, but I think it'll be competitive. 
But, you know, to be blunt, the Democrats have an uphill battle to retain their very, very slender majority in the House. Senate's a different matter. There are a lot more Republican seats up uh, in 2022 than there are seats of Democrats. Certainly, there are vulnerable Democrats like Raphael Warnock uh, running again in Georgia, especially with some of the voter suppression and uh, and uh, uh, voter intimidation uh, laws that uh, Georgia is enacting. Um, but Republicans have vulnerabilities as well in places like Wisconsin, where Ron Johnson is a pretty weak candidate in the open seat in Ohio, normally Republican state, but the Republican candidate is likely to be a, uh, an absolute radical uh, fanatic. And the Democrats may well nominate a working class uh, guy like Tim Ryan. So Democrats have a chance to uh, add a seat or two. If that happens in the Senate, uh, then I think you may well see um, uh, some real changes. And that will include, if there's a little bit of a cushion for Democrats, um, major changes in the way they do nominations and confirmation. Of course, if the House goes to the Republicans, uh, even if the Democrats retain the Senate and gain seats, they're not going to be able to pass voting reform or do any of the things that they would like to do um, with a House that won't let anything happen. You know, the one thing I would add to that, it, it relates specifically to redistricting, but a broader point about what happened in the Congress this past week. Um, Politico, right on schedule, published an article to, uh, saying, now the Republicans are considering more ruthless redistricting. Why is that? Well, that's because of what happened in the Congress. It, 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 this could have significant consequences going forward. If it turns out to be the case that Congress cannot or will not address voting rights and redistricting as the Freedom to Vote Act did and does because of the filibuster, even with a Democratic president, a Democratic House, and a Democratic majority Senate, and the courts, the federal courts, will not get involved. The federal courts are... Uh, are not willing to police voting rights. They have not struck down a single state restrictive voting law. They've made it clear that you can, aren't even allowed to bring a partisan gerrymandering case into federal court. So if Congress can't get involved and the courts will not get involved, that gives a green light to states to abuse the rights of their own people, including things like egregious partisan gerrymandering, much more than we've seen in the last few months, and voting restrictions more severe, uh, more racially targeted, and more extreme than what we have right now. It is a mistake to look at where things stand today as a snapshot. Um, if the Congress and the courts give that green light to the states, uh, they will be off to the races. Well, while we're on the topic, President Biden was criticized post-news conference for uh, all but saying that the election results would be illegitimate, Norman. And I, I think his phrasing was inapt, but uh, the reality is uh, his point was accurate. What we're seeing in large numbers of states is not just attempts to suppress votes. In Georgia, for example, uh, places where they're trying to remove all the polling places except one, large rural counties, which would make it extremely difficult for people to vote. In Harris County, Texas, which is 
as large or larger than many states and the most populous and uh, one where Democrats win a lot. Uh, one drop box where people might have to travel 100 miles uh, to cast a mail-in ballot. All of those things combine with efforts to replace election officials with partisans if they don't like uh, the fact that they're being honest to now in Florida, um, and we're going to see it in other states, Ron DeSantis saying he may uh, create a kind of vigilante police force to intimidate voters and uh, having the power to arrest people who they think are not doing what they want in elections. All of those things and many others uh, make it clear that the effort that failed in 2020 to change an election result because you don't like it, to uh, negate uh, validly cast ballots, is going on even as we speak. So in that sense, even if the phrasing was bad, uh, Biden was right. Norm Ornstein, Michael Waldman, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is This Week's America Change Forever. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. Download and review this podcast. Check your local listings to see when the show airs on your favorite radio station. And you can also listen every Saturday on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Changed Forever. you ready for an all-new season of survivor you better be because survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss better yet after each episode there's a brand new episode of on fire the only official survivor podcast each week we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments taking you into the how and the why things happened in this season we're very lucky to be joined by an expert the winner of survivor 45 divaya daris what is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.